All right, so Ephesians 4, we're going to continue in, and we're going to, we, we ended with Ephesians 4, verse 7 last year, the week before Christmas. It's last year, the week before Christmas. So we're going to pick up with Ephesians 4 and redo verse 7 and um, go over that because it, it gives a little context. So just, we'll do a little review first, a review of where we left off the beginning of Ephesians 4. The whole chapter was... Um, when we left Ephesus a few weeks ago to talk about the Christmas story, Paul was in Ephesus telling the believers that there was an expectation of Christian conduct. So when we're saved, the Holy Spirit does a work in us that gives us a desire to live our lives in a certain way. And we talked about what we're called to be, called to be gentle, called to be patient, and called to bear with one another in love. And then we talked about Paul giving us a theology lesson, and that theology lesson from Paul explains to us there's only one Holy Spirit, and we're called to one hope in Jesus who calls us. And he also told us that there's only one Lord, there's only one faith, and there's only one baptism. So this is about unity. It's about understanding that there's only one way. And as you know, in the world today, it's a very universalist church. Like There's a lot of people who are in what they like to call Christian churches who will basically say to you, you can believe whatever you want and get to heaven. That is not true. The Bible actually is counterintuitive to that. You cannot believe whatever you want and get into heaven. You got to believe in Jesus Christ crucified and that is it. And there are some very important parts of orthodoxy that state that. I read this thing on the internet the other day. My head almost exploded. Um, This guy, he's he's an acquaintance of mine and he was talking about how judgmental Christians are. And he's like, I've had buddies who are Buddhists Christians. I don't understand what the problem is. And I'm like, no, brother, that's not how that works. You cannot be searching for everlasting enlightenment and not Christ. Um, They don't fit together. They're incompatible. So we'll start with verse seven and um, we will read on from there. I'm in the wrong book. So I got to switch Ephesians four. And then we'll start in verse 7, where it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this uh, grace that we've talked about, he's really pushing on grace. Paul is here, the grace that we received according to what Christ gives us, not what we bring to the table. It's not what we do. It's not what we bring to him. It's not how we act. It's not how we believe. It's all a gift of God. It's all a gift of Jesus Christ. It's all through his work. But because we know there's one God and one faith and one baptism, grace comes from that source. We know that there's perfect unity in it and it doesn't rely on us or our opinion. But in the next verse, we'll move into this now. Paul is going to quote from Psalms. He's going to quote Psalm 68 verse 18. And it's, Paul writes here, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So I want to read on from there afterwards, but what I want you to know is that, um, is that we know that Christ physically ascended, right? We have witnesses to his ascension. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he took with him many who were dead believers and brought them to heaven. And Paul feels like he needs to explain it a little more. So depending on what version of the Bible you have, it may have parentheses around the next two verses. Some do not. I believe the King James does not have parentheses. I don't know if the NRSV, which is kind of an updated version of it, has parentheses. But the ESV, the NASB, 
the American Standard, they all have, does yours have parentheses? NIVs have parentheses? So it says this, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, so why are there parentheses in this? So depending on the version that you have, there'll be two uh, types of speech that translators will put in. Some are parentheses and some are brackets. Now, oftentimes what you find is brackets. Like at the end of Mark, you'll find brackets because there are pieces that some translators feel like didn't belong in the original text or they were other pieces of text that they stuck in those books. There's, there's a whole bunch of explanations behind that and good reasons why they are where they are. They are not inconsistent. They are very consistent. Parentheses, however, typically are used when there's a thought within a thought. So like Paul utilizes... Uh, this verse here from Psalm 68, he ascended. And what Paul is saying is, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended? So he's explaining the thought within the thought. So that's one reason that translators use parentheses. And the second reason they use it is if they feel something needs to be accentuated, they'll stick it in parentheses, typically after the original thought. So they are a part of the original text, but... For some reason, when guys, gals, whoever, theologians, textual critics, translated these uh, Bibles, they decided that the thought within a thought should be put in parentheses. So when you read it, you go back and reread it and go, okay, this is what he really means. And this is why. Because there's some debate over this. So even though Paul explains it, there's still confusion. So what does it mean that Paul descended into the lower regions of the earth? So that becomes the kind of theological. Now, you and I might not want to debate this because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change my faith. But somebody out there really digs in on this and feels like it needs explanation. And it creates kind of a new vein of uh, theology. Here's why. This is a rare belief, but there are some that believe that Jesus upon his death literally went into hell and got the keys to hell. Okay, and I'd heard that years ago. And then I'd heard it most recently, but there are some people who believe that Christ descended into hell. And what they use oftentimes for support for that is 1 Peter 3.19 and 1 Peter 4.6, and they support that text. Um, I don't think that 3.19 gives enough information to apply it to this perfectly, and I don't believe 1 Peter 4.6 is, I think it's a clear misreading of this to utilize those. But there's this other little thing that you may have heard of called the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, it states that Jesus descended into hell. So I grew up in the Catholic Church. We recited the Apostles' Creed. You go to a Reformed church, they probably recite the Apostles' Creed every once in a while. And it has that in it. But here's the funny thing about the Apostles' Creed. The original creed is written in 325. And that verse, Jesus descended into hell, wasn't added until 390. This is A.D., of course, and this is when uh, Apollinarius was bishop, and he also taught that Jesus wasn't fully a man. So there's a little bit of heresy going on when this verse is added, um, and, and it makes you question why it's in there, okay? That heresy about Jesus not being fully man was condemned nine years earlier at the Council of Constantinople. That guy discredited himself, 
But the idea of Jesus actually going to hell is not necessarily directly supported by the text, but it is believed by some veins of Christianity. But here's the funny thing. If you remember, Jesus is on the cross, and he is there as we picture it, and he's between two criminals, and one of them decides that he is going to believe. His heart's been touched by the Holy Spirit, and he believes. And if you remember what Jesus says to him right before that guy dies is, today I will see you in Paradiso, in the garden, in heaven. So Christ, when he died that day, went to the garden. He went to paradise. He went to heaven. He didn't go to hell. As far as we know, that's what he said. So I tend to believe what Jesus said. The second thought was that Paul means that Jesus physically descended into the grave and ascended out of the grave. And this would kind of make sense. This is kind of the very you know, easily applicable thing. Like he descended into the grave. Like when I, when somebody that you know dies, we put them into the ground and then they rise up out of that if you take them out. Um, even though Jesus probably wasn't put down, he was put into a grave. Kind of the thought of burying somebody is the thought of what you do with a dead body. So that, um, you know, explanation of I put you down and then you rose up out. And then there's the third thought, which is the final thought, which kind of holds to Christian orthodoxy is that Jesus descended as he became, as he came out of the heavenly realms. So he was in the beginning, John 1, 1. He was in the beginning with God, the father. He became a man through Mary. He descended, he became man. He did his ministry. And then after he died, and spent 40 days uh, walking the planet, continuing to minister, he ascended again. So, But what's really important about this is that Paul is telling us about Jesus' nature as one who belongs above all things. Um, and he decided to position himself into the lower regions of the earth to show his humility, to show his humanity, and to show his love for people, right? He he emptied himself and became one of us so that he could do that work that we needed uh, for him to do on the cross for our sins. So the next seven verses are going to show us how we're going to maintain unity in the church. And it also talks to us about leadership or positions in the church that have been established in order for us to grow in unity. So we're going to read verses 11 through verse 16, and we're going to get... We're going to learn a little bit about the positions of the church. So it says this, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, the word man there just means person, to the measure of stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul is explaining the order that keeps us unified as believers here. And this is really important. This is a really important part of the text. And Paul does this in a couple of cases where he sets up 
What does the church look like? Who is put in place to do what in the church, right? So he instituted positions held in the body of Christ that keeps order and, and ensures that the saints, that us as believers, learn the entire counsel of God. It's important that we learn properly. And part of this is from sitting under good instruction, part of it's self-instruction, part of it's good study. It's taking in good biblical material during the week when you're reading. But these are the positions that he gives us here. He gave the church apostles. So we've talked about this, Paul, we've talked about it a couple times because in Galatians and Ephesians, he refers to himself as an apostle. And we talked about it in previous studies, what it means to be an apostle. Christ has to appoint an apostle. Although you might see in the South, churches you drive by and they say they're apostolic and somebody calls themselves an apostle. It is absolutely not true. You can't have an apostle anymore. It's unbiblical. The Bible lays out how apostles are chosen. Those do not ha occur today. Um, but they're very specific positions, apostles. And then prophets. So Old Testament prophets is one of the things he's talking about. And um, we all read possibly uh, the first century prophets that are there as well. If you look into Acts 11, 21 through 28, you'll see that there were prophets prophesying at Jesus' time. Whether that continues in today's world, that is a... Um, Highly debated topic. I tend to believe that we don't have modern day prophets because there's no more prophecy that needs to take place. After Revelation, we see what the end of the world looks like. We see what it looks like when Jesus comes back. If somebody prophesies something has a word from God, then it should be written down and put in the Bible. If you remember back to Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on these two things. It's built in the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And that's the important thing. So we also have evangelists, which are those who go spread the good news. We have shepherds, which are elders, pastors, and overseers, and then teachers. And all are equipped to teach. All teachers are equipped to teach. Um, and it's an equipping by the Holy Spirit. So some people probably should not. So why did he separate these roles out? So they're all very weighty. They all require attention. They all have detailed work. People should be putting time into them. Um, and there may be some crossover. Some people do a multitude of these things. But overall, they all work together to ensure believers know the fullness of truth. And it builds up the church. And like it talks about here, it helps us to mature. We should be being more mature as believers every time we read, every time we study, as we live in a relationship with our wife, in a relationship with our husband. As people who are unmarried yet, we should continue to grow towards somebody who is becoming more mature as a believer. So we're all called to evangelize at some level as well. We should be sharing the gospel with people. But in this case, when we talk about evangelists, uh, we really talk about people bringing the gospel to new places. Uh, this, this word is really euangelistes. It's more of a word about somebody who carries the gospel instead of somebody who just, like I can evangelize my neighbors, but I'm not carrying it to them. This is like somebody leaving Jerusalem at the time and bringing the gospel to somebody else, like a traveling deliverer of God's word. Then you have shepherds. Shepherds are like pastors, elders. Elders, we have a great deal of information about the requirements for them. Actually, when we started doing Bible study here, it's the first thing that we went over because I think it's important that we know where we stand if we're going to sit under somebody that's teaching the word of God. There needs to be expectations. So, Two places we find those in the letters to Timothy and the letters to Titus from Paul. And in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, what we're going to see is that an overseer must fill all of these roles. 
And I'll just read them so you can hear them because this is important. So in your life, wherever you are sitting in a church or in a study, this is what you should be thinking about a pastor, preacher, overseer who is, you know, expositing the text and reading the word of God out to you. They need to be these things above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They need to be able to manage their own household well with dignity and keeping his children submissive. This is in quotes. I want you to hear this. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So if you have somebody whose house is just a complete mess and the wife and the kids are off doing some other strange stuff, they are not fit to be a pastor, preacher, or overseer. And they also cannot be a recent convert and you'd be well thought of by outsiders. These are very specific. If any of these is not met, they're disqualified. Titus 1 is very similar, covers a lot of the same things, but in that letter, Paul adds this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here's this thing with unity. With unity comes rebuke. You need to be able to look at things that are not biblical and then say to people, that's not biblical. That doesn't fit what the Orthodox church believes, what we believe, what comes from the Bible. And then James goes as far as to say, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So I think people who are you know, setting up big churches, if you build it, they will come type of thing and are getting people in there so they can make a bunch of money and are preaching things that they don't know, are preaching things incorrectly, uh, aren't studying, if they're stealing the word of God, if they are um, taking somebody else's message and preaching it as their own, um, that these people are being held to a very high level. And what James says here is they'll be judged more strictly. God is basically going to look at them and be like, you lied to my people, and um, I'm going to hold you accountable. So, I want to be clear that he didn't give the role to all believers to teach, nor did he give the role to any government official to teach. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Government officials don't teach what the church believes or teaches, nor did he give individual authority to change the gospel message based on what we feel. We all need to know that sometimes what the Bible says we disagree with and we don't feel like it's right. That doesn't matter. It's, it's God's word. And he established order, an order that is revealed through our orthodoxy. And the orthodoxy is maintained through an attempt at reformation. So we should constantly be reforming our faith as a means to believe in fact, practice our faith as Christ intended, not as we feel it should be or as the government tells us. So how we are led and how we hold our biblical and community leadership accountability is essential for the church. So whether here and we study here and study the Bible together, or you're sitting in a big church, we should all be holding our leaders, pastors, preachers, teachers, evangelists, um, you know, whatever church position is in there, men and women who are in there teaching kids, whatever happens, we need to be holding them accountable, right? Everybody that's there. When we waver on these precepts of how people should be acting, believing, teaching, we put the church at risk of losing what Christ intended for it and how it functions properly within the community so that it's an effective witness for others. So how are we supposed to call ourselves Christians when we don't believe what the book says? Like the book says to do it this way, but then churches will waver on it and set it aside 
Like that, that doesn't make any sense. I believe what's in the book. Hold people accountable. It's right. Other people look at us as Christians and we say that we believe what's in the book. And then when we don't practice it that way, and we have churches who are out of line, why would they ever believe in a savior that wrote a book, but we don't trust everything that's in that book. We're really hypocritical when you do that. So this holds to the truth of the savior. And we need to be careful about maintaining that, especially when others are watching, right? When these truths are attacked, we need to be prepared to defend them as well. So what Paul explains is that without maturity, we'll easily tossed around by the waves of poor doctrine and evil that will come into the church. So part of understanding this is understanding when people come into the church that are teaching things that are incorrect, that we're able to say, that is not consistent with the word of God. We've had some recent study with this lately where it's like, in my life, when I see things that are inconsistent with the word of God, I back off, I study, and I pray hard, and I look towards, especially senior members of the church, we have great modern church fathers. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who just passed recently, John MacArthur, we have um, G3 Ministries, we have all these very good orthodox biblical teachers who are there for us, who their entire lives are spent studying, expositing the word of God and trying to reform us back to what we think would Jesus would want us to look like as a church. And we should utilize those references um, for the right reasons, which is to walk properly. The other thing is we're called to speak truth and love. And this is a very funny one, right? Because it's speak truth and love, which is not mushy at all. And usually never to speak truth and love. And you notice this in your marriage. It's like sometimes you need to be honest in your marriage because I'm being truthful, but it doesn't seem like it's loving. It just seems like it's honest, but it's loving because I'm being honest, but sometimes it's hard. So the church is very much the same way where when the church is not doing things right or people are not teaching things right or acting right or their family isn't right and they shouldn't be expositing the word of God, it's not easy. And it sounds counterintuitive to the truth. And I always come back to this when I think about this, when people ask, but should you be judgmental? And I ask like, would you stop your kids from touching a hot stove top? If the stove is hot and your kid's about to burn their hand really bad, would you not say, don't do that, right? Or physically prevent them from doing it. Do you love your spouse? Do you love your parents? Do you love your friends enough to tell them that you know where they will reside for the rest of their lives based on their faith, right? Do you care enough to tell people that Christ is the only way? So we all, we all in this room, we all have certain gifts. We all have certain ways of speaking to people. We all have people in our circle. And we, when we utilize those gifts, it helps unify the church, right? Because we're all doing things in different ways. We all have different approaches. It's all unified in Christ, crucified. But when we do that with Christ as the head of the church, it helps us grow and build in love. And this unity can come at a cost of being unpopular sometimes, right? And the church right now, I'm going to talk about this for a second before we close, is that we can get labeled as something, labeled as phobic, labeled as haters, imprisoned even and this is coming this is coming we're going to talk about this in two weeks on january 16th we're going to talk about this new law in canada c4 this new congressional act that went through and it's a canadian law that's going to test the church in a really corporeal way it is going to be pretty tough so we'll talk about that more in two weeks and we're going to get into it uh, and how that new law is going to really be hard on the church in canada because they are going to start leveraging 
the legal system to prevent Christians from being truthful about the way people live their lives. So there's two really evident takeaways, I think, from this teaching, from this part of Ephesians, unity and discernment. Okay, you can't have one without the other. You've got to be unified to discern. In order to discern, you've got to be unified. Um, and I can't encourage you to read your Bible enough. It's so important that you're reading the book on your own. You've got to be at home. You, gotta, you can't give the world 23 hours and 55 minutes and then give God five. You've got to give God a little bit more than that. Let him speak to your heart. When you read the word of God, it is the Theonoustos. He is pouring himself over you. Study the word of God. Find reliable Orthodox and Reformed resources that help develop your faith. And when we are unified in one true faith of Christ crucified, we grow and develop better. So this is my prayer for you this year. As we begin this new year, and we face things like new births, new school years, new semesters, new jobs, new challenges. My prayer is that we'll hold fast to the truth. I pray that we are all equipped, this whole group that meets here, um, that we're all equipped to be good servants and strong evangelists, that we serve each other, we serve the community. When one of us has a need, that we are quick to respond, um, that we're good evangelists, that we share the word of God with the people that are around us, that we share the hope that we have in our hearts with the people that need it. And I pray that all of our kids, from my grown ones down to our ones that are still in the womb, that they will grow up in homes that see their mom and dads love one another, Mom and dads love one another in a godly way that shows them that God loves them, that when they see that, not that we'll ever be perfect, but that they see mom submits to dad and dad submits to mom in a way that they love each other sacrificially. And that's what God's love looks like. And I pray we'd be honest about being discerning believers that seek the one God and father, as Paul would say here, who is over all and through all and in all. So, Father, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for this um, amazing message you brought to us about church unity, about discernment. I just feel like we really need to hear this today, that, um, that you've got an order for us. You've got an order for our church. You've got an order for our lives. And that when we attempt to be orderly, that we are able to be better servants of you, Lord, that we are able to love you better and we are able to love each other better and we are able to love others better. That we work hard to become intimate with you, Lord. You sent your son to give his life on the cross. It is the least we can do to learn what he would have for our lives. It is the least we can do to learn and study your word. It is the least we can do to reach out to those who have less. It is the least we can do to reach out to those who need that hope. I just ask that you'd make us strong and bold in that, Lord, that we would constantly try to love each other and love others in a way that shows your love for us. And I ask for all these things in the name of your precious Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.